you know, a lot of the doctors attribute these experiences, near-death experiences, to anoxia, lack lack of oxygen to the brain. But it, but it's been studied, and and a lot of people that have these experiences have no, you know, lack of oxygen. And how to, you know, and and if you know people like test pilots that have episodes like um, hallucinatory episodes because of a lack of oxygen while they're in these uh, supersonic planes. It's anything but clear and lucid. I mean, they're, it's jumbled and they, they don't even know what's going on. Hello, everyone. This is Diane Gilman, and the podcast is Too Young to Be Old, although many of you will know me as the Gene Queen from HSN. Today, we have the most fascinating of subjects, probably the one inevitability that none of us have ever been able to discover 100%, which is, is there consciousness after death? And we have, and it is my privilege to have Robert Ginsburg on air. If you watched, or if you're considering it, do the Netflix miniseries Surviving Death. Robert Ginsburg is episode four. He has spent two decades researching, backing up information, going to the medical community, going to the scientific community to prove there is consciousness and a continuum of thought after death. Robert, I could not be more respectful, more grateful, because I think if I asked, if we had a thousand people listening to this, and I said to you, how many of you have lost someone you loved? At least 999 would raise their hands. And if I asked, would you like to talk to them again? Would you like to know they're okay? 999 of you would raise your hands. Here is the man who actually has devoted the last two decades to proof that that is true. Robert, thank you so, so much. Will you tell us your story and how you began your journey yeah, uh, if we we go back um, to 2001, and we wouldn't be having this conversation because I was a um, an open-minded skeptic, but a skeptic none the, the least when it comes to the concept of life after death. You know, I was a logical left-brain thinker, and I said, "What could possibly survive? We are our bodies. We are our brains. Our brains are no more. Our bodies are no more. So that's it." The finality of death is what made sense to me. Um, and then on the morning of uh, September 1st, 2002, uh, my wife uh, woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and she sat up in bed and she was trembling and shaken, shaking and ashen white. She couldn't even speak. And I said, what's the matter? And she would just stare at me she said, and she still wouldn't talk. I said, you know, I just grabbed her. I said, what's the matter? Tell me. And she just looked at me and said, you know, something horrible is going to happen today. And I said, well, you know, what, what does that mean? Can you tell me any more? And she said, all I, I can tell you is that our lives are going to be changed forever today. So I, you know, even though 
I didn't so-called believe in this stuff, you know, like, you know, visions of precognition or anything like that. I took it seriously because we were married at that point, you know, for a very long time. And uh, we had, uh, my wife Fran had many experiences where she had similar, you know, precognitive visions and they all turned out to play out exactly the way she said, but they were all good things. So I said, well, if she was right then, she could be right now. So to make a long story short, I watched over my three children throughout the day. Um, I let my guard down at night. Um, I let it fade from my awareness. And then we were in a restaurant and uh, we had two cars and I let my son and my daughter drive home in one car and Fran and I followed. And, you know, we came upon a horrific accident. Uh, my daughter didn't survive her injuries and my son had very serious injuries and was airlifted to a to a uh, local hospital. So uh, after, um, you know, not even knowing at that point whether I was going to lose two children, um, I was in shock, as you might uh, anticipate. And then suddenly it dawned on me. I remembered that morning, you know, of, of wait, wait a second. How did Fran know? She knew, you know, I mean, so I became obsessed with finding out if there were credible people, I'm talking about people with advanced degrees and medical degrees, that had any evidence that that my daughter could still be alive in some form. You know, did she survive and where was she and is she okay? I mean, those are the things that most people want to know about their deceased loved ones. Yeah. And, and, and when I started, I, you know, I started traveling across the country meeting with all these people, um, mostly st scientists that studied consciousness and the evidence that I was learning about was was incredible to me, and I'm like, why doesn't everybody know about this? And so, that it, yeah, what kind of evidence could you give us some examples? Yeah, I'm well, for, yeah. For instance, I mean, I started with investigating near death experiences. You know, so in a near death experience, what happens is that a person meets every single definition that medical science has for death. They have no brain waves, they have no heartbeat, they have no respiration, uh, you know, their EEG is flat, they have no reflexes. Medical science and doctors say they're dead. And yet, um, you know, with the resuscitative techniques that we have today, um, some of these people are brought back to life. Um, and when they come back to life, they talk about experiences they had when they were what's called on the other side you know sometimes not everybody has the same experience but you know some people talk about going through a tunnel you know reaching a light some people talk about elevating above their bodies and and can tell you everything that went on people report clear and lucid thinking if you have no brain waves how do you have clear and lucid you know thinking that made no sense to me you know uh they describe it as being realer than real they describe seeing loved ones that had died you know before them and there are there are multitudes of common commonalities with these things so that thing that that got me on the track and that i thought that was tremendous you know evidence that our we're not our brains we're more than our physical bodies and that at death our minds or our consciousness or our soul, whatever you prefer to call it, goes beyond the body um, and still goes on. It's just, you know, in, in a different form. So did when your daughter died and it was so traumatic for your family, did you start to recognize some kind of sign that she was trying to tell you she was 
Okay, like after my mother died, every fall, every October, even when I was living in a high rise on the 41st floor, a monarch butterfly would fly all around the windows, land on the windowsill, and it happened year after year. And I had to think, this makes no sense in a metropolis like Manhattan, makes no sense on uh, so high up on the 41st floor. And I almost immediately recognized that it was a sign I was supposed to recognize and respond to. So tell me, did that happen to you? And did that spur your research efforts? Yeah, I'm a little bit different because Yet signs were happening all around me. My wife was getting them like crazy, and I was living vicariously through her experiences. And people that I knew um, were getting all these communications and signs. But I was so, so much of a, of a I was so skeptical of it, you know, uh, that I wasn't even recognizing the signs when they were happening because it was, didn't fit into my frame of reference. And all these incredible things, you know, uh, I mean. I think I, I, I might have mentioned to you once before, but I, I, I started writing down all of these um, experiences that were happening, and I, I brought them to a statistician to calculate the odds against chance, and I had 20 million to, uh, million to one shots, you know, odds above chance of, of, of greater than a million to one, and I had 20 of them, and then that's the point where I just relented, and it took about, I have to tell you, it took about five or six years, you know, for me to, to get to that point. Of course, after I was open to it, yeah, then I did get, you know, you know, many signs. You know, the, the, the first thing that happened, Diane, is that um, my, my wife, my daughter was 15 years old when she passed. And she, I didn't know this um, at the time, but her best friend um, told my wife that when the two of them were 13, two years before, my daughter made her best friend enter into a pact with her. And the pact was that if one of them were to die, they had them each make up a sign that they were going to communicate to their friend so their friend would know that they're still alive. I mean, what 13-year-olds do that, you know? Wow. So uh, Bailey, my daughter, her sign to her best friend that she was going to take a, a, a blue magic marker pen and leave it in an unusual place. And her best friend says, told my wife that she went back home after the funeral, Bailey's funeral, and then she walked into her room and then neatly placed on her computer keyboard was a blue magic marker. And she said, I don't own one, you know, and I don't remember ever using one. <laughs> you know? So, of course, I heard that story, but me, everybody else was amazed. But to me, I just dismissed it as, you know, it must be coincidence. But okay. things like that happen. I'll tell you a story. So, and, and I've gotten signs all my life. And even as a really little girl at like four years old, I was seeing ghosts and hearing them talk and, and, and not, not really in a crazy way. I really never, I just kind of thought it was reality. So my mother, God bless her, passed away at 95. Her big thing in life, she loved caramel corn. So we always used to go and get car caramel-soaked popcorn. She adored it. And, you know, her attitude was, 
I, yeah, I know it's not good to eat, but I'm 95. What do you want? I'm going to eat what I want to eat. And she was so tiny anyway. So I had a very hard time after she passed cleaning out the apartment. It was like the final blow that she was gone. And I had a hard time facing it, but we finally did it up in Falmouth, Maine. This was when my husband was still alive. We had rented a car. We didn't own a car. We rented one. We're driving around in our Hertz car or whatever. And after cleaning up part of the apartment, we decided to go for lunch before we started driving back to Manhattan. The car was pristine. So we just had our bags in the car. That's it. Took my purse. He gets out. We go for lunch. We come back. We had had a long conversation about missing her, missing my mother. The car seats and the floor of the car. There was scattered caramel corn everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, that was a real blow away moment to just know that she was saying, hey, I'm, I'm here and it's okay. That's at least a sense I got from it. But the, I mean, I'm looking at him, he's looking at me and I'm thinking, no, I don't think Jim is hiding caramel corn in his pockets and throwing it in the car when I'm not looking. So yeah. that's my materialization story. And and that's why I believe what you're saying about the blue marker is so true. Yeah, there. you know, I mean, the th theory is that our loved ones in the spirit realm being entities of energy can manipulate energy. Um, it's ah. the psycho, psychokinesis, it's mind over matter. They, they still, they don't have a body anymore, but they still have a mind. And they can manipulate physical energy the same way or maybe better than we can. So that's why people lots of times report recordings and, and anomalies with their clocks and radios and uh, things involving energy, lights flickering on and off. You know, um, you mentioned the Netflix series. Uh, we gave a, a, a clip to Netflix, which for them to use in the documentary, and it was it showed. Uh, Fran and I walked into our home um, at the time, and uh, we walked into the kitchen. And our kitchen had a, a ceiling with nine hi hat lights in it, and we were just talking about my daughter, you know, Bailey. And as soon as I took one step into the kitchen, all nine hi-hats. It was like a 4th of July light show. They were going on and off, on and off, on and off. And I was, I'm just, my wife is filming this, you know, and, and she's, and, and I'm just standing there staring at it. And then it lasted for about 10 or 15 minutes. No other problem, no other part of the house was affected, you know, just in the kitchen. And then it stopped. And then five minutes later, we got a second light show, went on for another 15 minutes. So me, as you might expect, what I did is nine o'clock the next morning, I had an electrician there. I had him, I had him take down every hi hat, and then I had him take apart the switches. And of course, he found absolutely nothing wrong with anything, and it had never happened before, and it never happened after that. So, things like that, you're thinking of your loved one, you mention them, you might talk to them, you might send, set the intention, and then 
as if it seems like a response, you know, you get something like that, you know, and there's an example of, of, of uh, manipulating energy. So what are your findings or, or your beliefs or views on reincarnation where the, you might have any number of physical bodies over a huge period of time and come and go and come and go? How do you feel about that? Did you seek proof of that? Did you hope you would meet your daughter again? Yeah, I never gave much thought to reincarnation. And frankly, it was the hardest piece of the puzzle for me to put together. However, uh, what I had learned um, is that there's a famous uh, researcher, Dr. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia, who for 40 years uh, traveled around the world uh, investigating cases of past life memories of children. Um, and, and then the, the researcher, in effect, becomes a detective because a child starts talking about a prior family. They, he, he, they will interview the child. They'll get as much information as they can, and then they'll look up me- medical records, autopsy reports, school records, and you know uh, track down families and so forth. And he documented uh, 25 hundred cases uh, of this that were incredible. Uh, I think one of the, uh, some of his cases are, are, uh, are shown on the on that Netflix documentary. But after he um, passed on, uh, Jim Tucker, who's a medical doctor also at the University of Virginia, took up the mantle and sort of gave up uh, most of his regular practice and then devoted his career to the study of reincarnation. So you can't argue, you know, with the evidence because if you read some of these cases, you know, they're just simply incredible. So I do believe that not everybody reincarnates. I think it's a choice. Um, but um, certainly it's a phenomenon that, that, you know, that's real. And it, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with religious views, um, you know, or cultural views. You know, it just, you know, it, it happens. You know, why some people choose to come back and why some don't. I don't know. The theory is that you keep coming back until you fulfill, um, you know, the so-called lessons that you had to learn. I always thought it was a little bit cruel. Like you send me back to learn a lesson, but I don't, you don't tell me what that lesson is. So (laughs) so I might spend the whole life doing the same stuff that I did before. (laughs) I feel that way sometimes. The hamster on the treadmill experience. Now I am going to ask you when you try have you ever deliberately tried to contact your daughter and did you do it through a medium because you're talking about the fact that you actually have a medium um certification program and i want to know what your criteria are but i want to know if you use a medium yeah, all right. Well, let me. Uh, I'll address that. I, so, as yeah, as you mentioned, in two thousand and five, after consulting with all these researchers and scientists, we developed our own certification program for mediums. Because um, my first book, uh, The Medium Explosion, I, in it, I say that eighty-five to ninety percent of all the mediums that are practicing today cannot do what they claim. I'm not saying that they're fraudulent. Some are, but most are not. They just have some intuitive ability, as do we all but not to the degree where they can communicate with the dead. Now, I personally, to answer your question, in all of these years and and certifying these mediums for so many years, I never went to one of our mediums for a reading. And the reason for that is that they all 
know something about me. Some of them know a lot about me. So I couldn't trust the information. <laughs> so, so for that reason, for that reason, I did not. But um, however, yeah, I have intentionally uh, tried. I would always set the intention in the first year or two after my daughter's passing uh, for her to come to me in a dream visitation. Uh, and over the period of, of three or four years, and I, I wrote them all down in a ledger, I had 72 or 74 dream visitations Whoa. over a four-year period for my daughter. And I'm talking about how they differ from regular dreams is that I could talk to her, I could hug her, I could kiss her, you know, I could smell her, um, you know, as if she was standing in front of me. So that was that was my connection, um, you know, uh, but it took being in that, in the various stages of sleep when my chatter mind was set exactly. aside. Yeah. yeah, when you're more open and, and your guard is down when you're sleeping. Because for my husband who uh, died of cancer, uh, actually yesterday was the 27 anniversary, 27 years gone. Um, I had two, just two dream visitations but my description of a dream visitation is it is a hyper real dream with no physical three-dimensional logic to it in other words and and i'll tell my story very quickly and nobody can is ever going to convince me that this was not a dream visitation. Those dreams are so different and so special and wouldn't you say so visceral, like you said you could hug her and kiss her and talk to her. I could not. But obviously, I had questions about how he entered the spirit world and i had obviously leftover guilt he had cancer i went to extremes praying that god would take a year of my healthy life and give it to him and that of course did not work so in the dream i was in the chrysler building which i never worked in i've been there once as a tourist but beautiful building all gilt on the inside that's on Madison Avenue. And outside the Chrysler building to the right, if you're looking out to the street, is a subway station where you walk down into the subway. I dreamt I was standing there sort of confused, like, what am I doing in the Chrysler building? Oh, do I work here? And I saw him outside because the Chrysler building is glass and a revolving door and that's all glass and i thought oh my god oh my god he's alive oh my god i've got to get to him and as i started to walk towards that revolving door i realized i had no shoes on or socks i was barefoot and I thought, no, 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 wait, this is totally illogical. This would never happen to me in the middle of Manhattan, but there I was. And as I came through the revolving door, I realized that the entire sidewalk was paved in huge chunks of broken glass. 
And that if I walked on this to get to him, I was going to tear my feet up and be bleeding and wounded. And I said to myself in my dream mind, is it worth it? And the answer was, oh, my God, to just say one final goodbye or I love you. It's so worth it. And I started running towards him and I could feel the blood flowing and and I could feel the pain in my feet and it didn't matter. I wanted to say goodbye. And he went down the subway steps and disappeared into the rush hour crowd. He never talked to me. He never smiled. He was a spirit, but it was so hyper real. And, and um, that was really a profound experience. Yeah. And after all these years, you still remember it like it was yesterday, right? Everything. <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, I could go into total detail and take up another 30 minutes, but I'm not going to. But I, I've had two dream visitations from him, both of them super powerful. One of them where I wanted to give back something to him. And one when I was in a very stressful period of my life and he came from the spirit world, very obviously never spoke to me, but he came from the spirit world to help me and protect me. And when he had done that in the dream, he disappeared. Hmm. Yeah, super heavy dreams. And I don't mean heavy in a bad way. I just mean they're different. And you know when you're having that. And you had 60 or 70 of them? Oh, my gosh. It, it, it was really, I used to tell people, like, I'm useless when I'm awake, but I can communicate when I'm, when I'm, when I'm not awake. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so if you had to tell people, because I think a lot of people define their lost loved one and define themselves by the amount of their grief. Do you see that when you can convince people, scientific and medically, that consciousness goes on after the physical body fades away, do you find that they are comforted? How how much skepticism is there out there, Robert? Well, I mean, to, to answer your question, not only do we see it, but uh, researchers and scientists see it. There, there are uh, several um, clinical studies regarding grief and a belief in an afterlife that have been published in peer-reviewed journals, and the scientists are finding a def definite correlation among those who believe that their loved ones still exist in some form do better in their grief than those who don't. We see it, I mean, sometimes you can be convinced by the evidence, uh, you know, that was the path I took, but some people don't need the evidence. They just have this a profound um, after-death communication or a medium reading or something that flips the way they they think. Also, and a really, if a medium gives you a really good evidential um, reading where they're connected to your loved one, that can have an unbelievable effect. You know, we we hold um, four grief retreats per year in different parts of the United States. Oh, and say, we, you know, Forever Family Foundation, and we have four certified mediums at each retreat as part of the program, and. 
we see people that have these um, unquestionable um, evidential readings and they leave the retreat on a high because for the first time they have hope and comfort where they had none before. So this is kind of a very broad question and, and I'm sure that you're going to be able to compress this into a finite answer, but what is the afterlife like? What does your daughter say or what is the feeling you get from communicating with her joy uh is it scary i mean i'm sure it's fairly individual but what are your experiences with what you believe the afterlife is like yeah it's a, it's a it's a it is a broad question what what the the um you know, mediums, when you go for a medium reading, they never talk about what the afterlife is like. It's hard enough for them to get evidential communications yeah. so you can identify it, let alone, you know, big narratives of what the afterlife is. However, in the past, there were mediums like uh, trance mediums that would channel, you know, spirits and books have been written about what it's like. Um, also, people that have near-death experiences travel there. They tell us about what it's like. So um, the, the theory is that we go to this other realm based upon our own self-judgment. In other words, there's no deity that says, you go here, or you go there. We have a life review where we, our whole life flashes before our eyes. We, we feel all the good that we bestowed upon others. We also feel the sadness and the hurt that we uh, caused other people to have. Um, and we move into the realm of like-minded people. You know, now for some, like the, the people that we recognize as being horrible people, you know, on, on this earth, um, they may start off at a different level, but eventually um, with help and guidance and, and review, they move on to people talk about it's this world of thought. They talk about. Uh, they talk about houses. If you want to manifest a house, you can. They talk about halls of learning and museums and colors and la landscapes that are unknown to the physical realm. Um, uh -huh. and, you know, and, and overwhelmingly, the results that people tell us, especially from near-death experiences, like 90% of them are, are uh, extremely... Um, heartwarming and, and and comforting because it's they, 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 it, it's a beautiful existence to the point that they're really pissed off when they have to return when some of them have to return they don't want to return you know, you know why come back into a, a pain yeah it my husband um had to have really radical cancer surgery several times and one time the last time he didn't, he died on the operating table and they brought him back to life. So he had a two near death experience and he didn't want to talk about it because he said it was so intense that he just didn't want to relive it by discussing it. But he talked about that tunnel and that bright blindingly bright white light it was not comforting to him it was scary and um the doctor said afterwards that it has something to do with adrenaline or the i mean the doctor had a reason to say ah oh, there is no such thing as a near-death experience that's just a chemical reaction 
in the body. My final question is, what do you say to that? Um, you know, a lot of the doctors attribute these experiences, near-death experiences, to anoxia, lack, lack of oxygen to the brain. But it, but it's been studied, and, and a lot of people that have these experiences have no, you know, lack of oxygen. And how to, you know, and, and if you know people like test pilots that have episodes, like um, hallucinatory episodes because of a lack of oxygen while they're in these uh, supersonic planes, it's anything but clear and lucid. I mean, they're it's jumbled and they they don't even know what's going on. Yeah. Whereas the near death experiencers talk about the complete opposite: logical thinking, you know, and knowledge. Also, regarding like your husband's experience, we still how we what our beliefs and our cultural views affect us. So if you're going through a tunnel. And let's say people are afraid that they're going to go to a heaven or a hell, you know, mostly be afraid they're, and they're religious, that may affect their experience because they're interpreting what they see in a cultural or religious framework. That's not necessarily how it is, but that's how they're interpreting it, at least initially. So I want to say it's been a privilege, and I could ask you a billion questions, but our time is sort of up. And I want you to know all about Robert Ginsburg and the efforts he's made to bring it to an acceptable level that, yes, there is consciousness after death. And you guys out there in the audience will do yourselves a huge favor by going to Netflix and watching the hit miniseries, Surviving Death, of which Robert is episode four. Robert. Thank you so, so much. I am hoping that for our audience, and I think almost everybody in some corner of their mind hopes that life goes on, consciousness goes on after we shed the physical body. I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences, and we'll put up how you can find Robert. And um, guys, Thank you so much for listening. This will air on a Thursday as we're now doing two podcasts a week, one on regular subjects for women over 55 and one on extraordinary paranormal subjects. Thank you, Robert. It was truly a privilege. My, My pleasure being with you, Diane. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Too Young to Be Old Podcasts. The episode may be over, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The Diane Gilman, or visit our website, thedianegilman.com. If you like the show, leave us a rating or a review, and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And until then, don't forget, age is just a number. Together, we'll prove that we are all too young to be old.